Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 255, recorded June 30th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 95. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro.com. Contact Astaro at www.astaro.com or call 1-877-4-ASTARO to schedule a free trial of an Astaro Security Gateway Appliance in your business. And by Audible.com. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security, your privacy online. Our guru, Mr. Steve Gibson, who comes down from his secure mountaintop lair every week to deliver to us the tablets. Steve is the expert at GRC.com, the author of Spinrite, the world's first hard drive and the world's best, not first, but best hard drive and maintenance utility. Might be close to the first. Actually, I was probably more like the last. (laughs) I like that. I'm the survivor, though. Everybody else dried up and went away, and I'm still there. Yeah. He also uh, coined the term spyware, wrote the first anti-spyware program. His uh, site, GRC.com, has lots of great free security stuff, free stuff of all kinds. Steve, good to see you again. You have your venti latte in there. I do. I have my my. This thing is a double lined vacuum filled. I I guess you really wouldn't have vacuum filling, but lack of air filling. Uh, (laughs) Airless. It's an airless. Keeps the coffee hot like all day long. It's just fantastic. And how many shots are in that bucket? That's just two. I've I've scaled back actually. Any reason for that? No, um, you know, if you're going to fill it with milk, then you really need some some shots to sort of give, you know, bring up the the coffeeness. But this is just hot water with a couple shots. In it. Oh, so interesting. Just sort, of like, just sort of like a fresh cup of coffee. Yeah. yeah. I've been doing that a lot lately, just the uh, the filtered coffee. It's delicious. Yeah, it is. So today we have a Q&A session, which we uh, do uh, regularly. This is number, I should correct the uh, lower third. I think this is our 95th Q&A well, it is, but other, but the big significant fact is the episode number two five five. This being the most binary podcast that you produce, Leo, <laughs> two hundred and fifty five. Which, of course, is all of our of all all of our techie propellerhead listeners know that's a full bite. Hex FF. So, uh, are we going to roll over to zero now, or are we going to are we a, are we a sixteen bit register? <laughs> now we got sixteen bits, and so the carry comes out of the of the low byte into the next byte, and so we'll be at two fifty six next week. Wow. But today, two fifty five. We got a ton of we have a little bit of updates, but important updates. A ton of really interesting security news, uh, and of course, some interesting questions and and uh, hopefully interesting answers. Well, I was looking forward to this. Sometimes this is the gloom and doom report. I'm looking at your show notes here. A few updates, but not too bad. Well, we went from, no, not too bad. We went from famine to feast news-wise because 
we've had a couple podcasts with very little going on, and this time there's just like you know we got news coming out of our ears, so lots lots of stuff to talk about. Well, let's get the updates first because we always like this is a this is kind of of late what we've done is we've started with patches. Yes. Um, so um, two pieces of news. First is that um, Adobe, because of the severity of the Flash exploit, which they fixed a few weeks ago for the Flash player itself, the, the, the Flash plugin that browsers normally invoke. As we know, that got moved. Essentially, they, they re- early released their seventh release candidate of version 10.1, which offers hardware a video acceleration and some other you know, enhancements, which actually some people have had problems with. They, they now offer 10.1 for if, if, you, if you go to get Flash Player, that's the one you're given. There is, and I meant to tell people this, if they're really having a problem with 10.1, there is a fixed version of the 10.0 uh, development chain, which you can update to if for whatever reason 10.1 has a problem on your system. And there have been reports of people who just can't get 10.1 going. So looks like Adobe has a little more work to do on that front. This was an aggressive change they made from 10.0 to 10.1, offering, you know, basically lower CPU utilization by taking advantage of the of the graphics accelerators that are available. And so... Well, they needed uh, that, too, because Flash is a pig. Yes, 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 yes. So, um, so that was for the plug-in, but not for its presence where it was still vulnerable and where we had talked about addressing problems in that blog posting that I made a few weeks ago, I instructed people how they could rename the, the essentially the flash that is built into reader and or Acrobat, which is different from the plugin. Well, anyway, so the point was that that vulnerability was still existed. Now, Adobe, you know, famously stated that they were going to do a quarterly patch cycle and so July 13th would have been the second Tuesday of July, um, which was their regularly scheduled next opportunity to update. Because, but because of the severity of this, they pushed it out early. And in fact, they pushed it out two days ago on June 29th. So some people have reported that their use of, of um, PDF reader noted that there was an update and updated them. Others have said that they did not get an automatic update. So I wanted to let all of our listeners know what, what you can do either way. Is, well, if you, get, if you have been updated in the last day or two, you probably know it. And so uh, you're fine. You, you will be taken to probably either 9.3.3 or I got actually taken to 8.2.3 because I'm still back on version 8, haven't moved up to version 9. So all of those various um, uh, version uh, threads have been updated. However, in my case, it was necessary to open a PDF and under the help menu, choose check for updates. And it said, oh, there is an update. What do you know? And it's like, well, it would have been nice if you'd you know, tell me that. But you know, it didn't do so proactively. So do make sure Apparently that Apparently Acrobat got- does. Okay, you're talking about Firefox. I know. I'm just I'm reading in the chat room. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to th- oh, okay. throw you off there. I'm just um, well, I, well, because I'm Acrobat, but maybe 
But reader uh, maybe version eight doesn't because I'm on version eight. Anyway, oh. some people have said they didn't get an update. That's interesting. Uh, other people said they did. So right. just make sure that you're running uh, or, or that you, you just, if, you know, when you open a PDF, just do check for updates and make sure that it agrees that you're current. That's and that will, that will give you um, uh, the latest and greatest. And finally, we can put this annoying, you know, latest annoying Adobe problem to bed. For a while. Uh, Two weeks earlier, yeah, until right. till our next podcast. Dr. Mom says it was Acrobat and Reader 9. Reader didn't, but Acrobat did. So maybe, okay. maybe 8 doesn't. Um, the other change was Firefox moved, has been moving actually very quickly forward. Uh, so quickly, in fact, that I missed a couple intermediate versions. I was at 3.6.3, and that was just not long ago. And now we're already at 3.6.6. What happened was at 3.6.4, they introduced some new technology, some enhanced crash protection, such that if you have Flash Player or, um, uh, of course, Adobe's Flash Player, Apple's QuickTime, or Microsoft's Silverlight, so any of the big three, you know, mega plug-in running on a page and... If they hang, there had been a problem that it could lock up the whole browser. And so they, in, in going to 3.6.4, they fixed that. They've impo- improved what they call crash protection, allowing you just to reload that one page. And so it, it keeps the stability of the browser, even if one of these heavyweight plugins decides it, what, it doesn't want to behave. And then they quickly went to four or, or from, from from point four to five and six, which is where they are now, just making some additional tweaks and some security, some security fixes. So Firefox users, we are now all at 3.6.6. And the version four beta candidate has begun to float around a little bit. It's actually a candidate release for the beta. And it's like, okay, well, mm. I guess they're, <laughs> beta, they're beta for beta. <laughs> exactly. They're tiptoeing into this one carefully. Um, this is a significant, this move to four, Firefox four is going to be significant. They've a major change to the, as we call it, the browser Chrome. That is the, you know, the window dressing um, tabs get moved up to the top the way they are in Chrome in Google's Chrome browser and in Opera. So they're making that change, um, which I think will be nice. It'd be nice to see. Um, And then the big deal is they're beginning to address this evolution toward web-based applications, like, for example, Google Calendar. The idea would be that with Firefox 4, you'll be able to break windows or like you what we might call them tabs but you'll be able to break them off so they'd look like standalone apps hmm. so like google's calendar would be running in a window looking not like a browser no browser navigation no forward backward button no menu you know no no shortcuts or all that other stuff that we're used to it would just look like an app but it would actually be a web a web-based, web-hosted app running in this sort of this freestanding window with like better desktop integration so you could have an icon on your desktop that launches Google Calendar without ever going through what looks like a browser. So, you know, and, and then there's a whole bunch of cloud stuff for like shortcut and 
and and tab sharing in the cloud between multiple instances of browsers running on different machines, that all that kind of stuff. So lots of new features coming in for, and uh, hopefully not lots of new security problems. So we know that's always a problem with anything new. So that's our updates. There you go. We're going to take a little break, come back. We have more in the security news. news. And then, of course, your questions and answers, too. Quite a bit coming up on the show. Before we go much farther, though, I do want to mention, as you mentioned, Astaro, our first sponsor on the Twitter Network, still with us. After low these, what, three years, four years? Uh, Leo, we're closing down on year five. (laughs) Holy camoly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 52. Four episodes away. Yeah, 260. 260. Will be the, yep. Wow. And Steve, it's easy to do it with Steve because unlike every other show on the network, he's not missed a single show ever. He's like crazy, man. You're insane. You've helped me several times when, when, when you've gone wandering off on cruises and things. We've, we've you know, made extra episodes. Well, and time. now we've got Tom Merritt who can work with you. So, uh, yeah, I plan to leave a lot. <laughs> no, Leo, don't go. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I finally could take a vacation. I got one coming up in August. And, uh, and, uh, Tom or Alex will probably do the show with you if that's cool. okay. Of course. Uh, Astaro, the folks at Astaro, uh, are just fantastic. They make the Astaro security gateway. They call it a UTM. That's, that's the term for it. Uh, unified threat management. It's a box that looks about the size of a router with heavy-gauge steel. But there's so much more inside, so much more smart, so much more software. It is really the best in class in commercial and open security software. It's all there for you. You've got uh, best-of-breed anti-spam and anti-phishing filters. You've got dual virus protection for email, since that's the big vector these days of bad guys, including spear phishing. But it's also got antivirus for web pages, another big vector. Complete filtering of content, so you you know you can pr- protect yourself from employees too who want to use IAM or peer to peer or whatever. Um, anti spyware, firewall, of course, state of the art, state stateful packet inspection and all of that. Intrusion protection, remote access via VPN. In fact, they really do a nice job with this. They've got the VPN via SSL. So this, this started with version 7, SSL VPN, uh, by enhancing existing protocols like IPsec, L2TP over IPsec, and PPTP tunneling with SSL, makes it much, much easier for you to set up and use a VPN. I, I do believe it's the only UTM on the market with this kind of VPN support, and that's not all. You also get encryption, decryption, and digital signatures of email based on SMIME and OpenPGP standards, and that's done at the uh, Staro, so your users don't even really have to know that that's happening. It just happens automatically for them. Automatic signing, automatic encryption, if you want. Inbound email automatically decrypted. And because uh, of the UTM, both incoming and outgoing email is verified and forwarded through virus and content scanners before your users even see it. Now, you can get a free home license. If you want to try before you buy, you go to astaro.com slash security now. And they're very liberal with their home user licenses including the 79 euro Astaro up-to-date package, which they give you for free for a home license. If you're a business, even better. Just call them and you can schedule a free trial of an Astaro security gateway in your business. And they're very good, very helpful. Really sharp security guys. We've talked to them at RSA every year and they're just really smart. 877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O. It's getting better all the time. 
as your business grows, so does your Astaro uh, gateway. You can you can uh, use up to 10 at once with their unique load balancing. 877-427-8276. That's 1-877-4-A-S-T-A-R-O. Or visit them online at astaro.com. The Astaro Security Gateway. It is a must-have for your small business. Give them a try. And we really thank them for supporting our show now almost for five years. Security news, Stephen. Well, there was a lot of controversy this week about whether Congress had given the president an Internet kill switch. Yeah, I saw that. I'd love to know what you think of that. Well, first of all, it's not possible. Um, there, you know, the Internet does isn't somewhere. It's not, you know, like in Virginia or somewhere. It's it's inherently distributed. So, I mean, and it's like distributed fabulously to make it so robust and resilient against accidental problems. So, the the first of all, that is not what the so-called Protecting Cyberspace as a National Asset Act does. Um, the only thing, and I looked at it carefully because I was curious what it was that, you know, le- legislatively had just happened. The only thing I could really see was that there were some formal, some formalization of the of presidential authority to ask or, you know, compel um, private Internet providers to do the right thing. The sort of stuff they would probably do anyway. Like, I mean, if there were some sort of cyber attack, you'd expect the major backbone people if it if you know you know from a technical standpoint if it was the right thing to do and i don't even know what that means because it would be a function of what the nature of the cyber attack was but for example if there was some major denial of service flood pouring into the country and we weren't able to block it effectively well you know the individual inlets could simply pull their pull their transatlantic plugs and just say okay we're just going to deny all incoming traffic into the u.s now that's not something that you know that the white house can flip a switch and 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 have happen um so because these are all privately owned and privately run but the president did get sort of the formal power to 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 formally ask private internet backbone providers to do the right thing so that's really all it was. The, I mean, I suppose technically you, if you really needed to, you could wire up some sort of master switch. But what it would have to do would be somehow literally um, insert itself between every incoming feed into the nation. And then, of course, the problem is how do you keep that from being flipped inadvertently i mean then of course i pick up the huge hacker targets like oh let's go get control of the internet kill switch and take the u.s off (laughs) off the internet so anyway it just there it's very difficult and impractical technically and that isn't what this protecting cyberspace as a national asset act did anyway so it was sort of some early misreporting of it and some overactive journalism i think well kill switch is such a good word in the head it's a hot button word (laughs) yes yes Meanwhile, many of our listeners asked if I was going to talk about something else that happened last week. Actually, it was on June 25th. The White House 
uh, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security blog, introduced the concept of a national strategy for trusted identities in cyberspace. Now, just the idea of the government getting involved in something, you know, this important, you know, the idea being that the government is is beginning to say, you know, um, impersonation and identity theft and spoofing and all these things are problems and they need solutions. So, so what they produced is a very substantial document. I think it's 40 pages long of which is the so-called National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace. And we're going to give it a podcast because I can't do it justice here. Um, many people, you know, some what I see more than anything in, in the industry's reaction is, oh, no, you know, don't let Big Brother, don't let the government get involved in this. And, you know, my feeling is, yes, I mean, I I understand the dangers, but... It is a direction we need to think about. My feeling is that it's a good thing it didn't happen 10 years ago because we weren't ready. We didn't, I mean, the, I don't mean the government wasn't, wasn't ready. The government will never be ready. The, the government can't do this. This has to be, you know, it'd be like the government, you know, it, 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 it'd be like the first Wi-Fi encryption, you know, WEP as opposed to WPA. The professionals got involved finally with second generation wireless encryption and, and got it right. Well, my feeling is that at this point in time, the security and the identity and the the just in general, the security community understands the problem, both both the good and the bad. You know, we've talked about on this show through these last five years, many of the problems with identification. I mean, for example, you might say, oh, biometrics is the answer. But then the problem, of course, is, well, what if you get your fingerprint stolen? You can't change your fingerprint. So that's a problem. And what? And, and do you want really your fingertip to be become a very high value, in which case maybe someone wants to go cut it off in order to borrow it and, and do something wrong with it? So, you know, I mean, there's, there's many sides to this issue. And it'll make for a great podcast to discuss, you know, what this national strategy for trusted identities in cyberspace document and proposal is coming from the government. Um, so, yes, I'm aware of it. And my sense is, well, it's a useful dialogue. I think I think the, I don't see the White House looking to or, or any or e even DHS to impose anything. I think they recognize it's really complicated. And ultimately, the solution will come from the industry we want to make sure that, you know, all of us in the industry want to make sure that it's done right. And it'll be an open process. So, I, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic and interested. And Lord knows it's a fantastic topic for the podcast. So I have a feeling the next five years of Security Now will be touching on, on this as it, you know, lumbers forward at no doubt glacial uh, speed. <laughs> Slowly. Yes. I also wanted to note that, again, in recent security news, that this accursed launch option in PDFs is ramping up still. What, what annoys me is Adobe has done nothing, and we're now at T 
T plus three months and counting. Remember, we talked about this at the end of March. A guy by the name of Dieter Stevens revealed a means for causing PDF files to run executable content, which they provided. We've talked about it a number of times because this problem is not going away. The good news is you can disable. I mean, our listeners are probably safe because I've I've pounded it into everybody that you can open up preferences in your whatever you use to read PDFs. And this is not only an Adobe problem. It's an Adobe format problem because for some reason they thought it would be great to have a launch option in a document which allows it to run like by design to, to launch code that the document contains. It can be turned off by using the so-called trust manager um, menu items under preferences and then turn off the allow opening of non-PDF file attachments with external applications. You don't want that on. No one wants that on. No one probably ever wanted that on, but it's on by default. And Adobe is still thinking about what they're going to do about this. Meanwhile, what's happened is... Um, Targeted attacks are occurring using this at an ever-increasing rate. There are variants of the worms we've talked about before, the, the ORAX and the E-mold worms, which drop a rootkit onto infected machines, and then, then, then they attempt to copy themselves to all attached drives, which will then use the auto-run tactic that we've talked about in order to reinfect those machines when you move an attached drive to some other machine. Um, the What's arriving for our listeners to sort of be aware of is, is email, targeted email, that appears to come from the company's system administrators telling them that they need to update their email settings. And again, this, some of this is not new, but it, unfortunately, it's still being very effective. And it's, it's getting a lot of these rootkits installed. The subject of the email is setting for your mailbox are changed. So not quite English properly formatted, which is as the first tip off, of course, as is often the case. And then inside it says SMTP and POP3 servers for mailbox are changed Please carefully read the attached instructions for updated settings. And, of course, that short email then contains the PDF that is the, the malicious payload, which only can get a grip on your machine if, you've, if you still have this launching option enabled, which hopefully none of our listeners by this point do. Because it's been three months and we've touched on this several times. I bring it up again because it is ramping up and... For example, there was a uh, one of the news reports was um, a major publication. I'm it was uh, IDG um, that published. I think it was Computer World, and IDG staffers have reported receiving a lot of this. So you know, I mean, it's 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 really being um, targeted, and unfortunately, it's being effective. For a while, a couple of weeks ago, the Zeus botnet had taken up to. To trying to use this also. So, I mean, this is just, uh, it's a current serious issue in, uh, in the security world. So don't get caught by it. Um, we've talked a little bit about how, this is a few weeks ago, Google still shows it in beta, how Google has allowed secure 
SSL connections for searches, which a lot of people like because we know that if you if you use HTTPS colon slash slash Google.com or www.google.com to get to Google search, you've, you've established an encrypted, authenticated tunnel, a connection between you and Google's engines and that nothing along the way is able to see what you search for nor see what Google returns. Well, everybody's happy with that except many school systems which depend upon their their access filtering to protect students or limit students from getting objectionable content of various sorts. So so the problem was that Google had many other services that that were fine with using encryption and but when google.com search was using encryption now there was a problem and educators were forced to block all of google security rather than just search security and that turned out to be a problem because within even within school administration many people were taking advantage of of the you know google cloud services that that were secured and securable and so they wanted to be able to use ssl the problem was they just didn't want search so what google did was split off some some different ips to make them some different ips just for secure search to make them to make search individually blockable over SSL. So what, what now exists is something called, it's, it's actually an alias for a different domain. It's called encrypted.google.com. And um, that, that's an alias for a different domain, www.3.l.google.com. Well, that's got different IPs than regular google.com. Regular Google.com is 6610279 and 7104. The this funky domain ww3.l.google.com, it's got 7.10 and 7.101. So what happens is if you if you attempt to go to Google.com over an SSL connection, you're actually, your browser is, you do get a, an SSL connection, but you are immediately redirected from those normal Google.com IPs to the second set of IPs. And that is currently the only way to access search. So what this, what this enables is people who want to filter search or block search um, because they can't filter. You're still going to get a secure connection if you attempt to go over SSL. But that allows them to block the the, the connection to those IPs at port 443 over at the Google side, which we know is SSL, which prevents you, prevents, for example, students within this protected environment from being able to get to Google securely. They have to do Google searches over non-SSL, which will leave them on the original IPs, which then allows the filtering and web monitoring software to do what it wants to do. 
So that was an interesting, I think it's you know, certainly not something that Google anticipated. Uh, that's probably why SSL still has a little beta flag on it. And uh, they're working out the bugs of, of allowing secure search. This is a way, again, of essentially allowing filters to block some secure access, which is the only way to get to search, but not block all of Google security because of, you know, because it turns out people do want to be able to like look at their calendar securely and do other administrative things using the Google cloud stuff. I wonder how much of this has to do with China. Good question. That's been active, of course. Google uh, is going to stop. Yeah, they, they backed off on this. So. Yes, yes. And, and, and uh, you know, they're going to, I don't know exactly what they're going to do. They're going to offer, they're not going to forward to Hong Kong anymore. Yeah, but they're, and they're saying they're going to, like, have a link. So they, 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 get they don't get unfiltered wanna... results, but it won't be, you have to click a button. Yeah, and so no one is really sure because their, their contract is expiring right. with, with with China, and so they're hoping to get renewed here in the next couple of days. Yeah, be interesting to see how that pans it's out. Obviously, like, well, we'll give you this much, and then they're waiting to see what China says. But I wonder if some of this filtering issue and this SSL issue doesn't have to do with schools and have more to do with governments that would like to keep an eye on what people are searching for. Yeah. It could very well be. Good point. They are billing it as, of course, you know, schools. schools. Yeah, but you know, who knows? That's less uh, sensitive. And then I got a kick out of this. Our listeners will, too. Um, uh, the FBI, well, and this is a mixed blessing. I want to make sure I'm not giddy about this. I don't, I don't like, I mean, you know, we've talked about how encryption in general is a powerful tool that is a double-edged sword. It's, we've, I mean, we just got through talking about how valuable encryption can be. People want to be able not to be spied on. They want to know that they've got some privacy. We, we certainly, we know we use encryption with SSL connection for, for banking and for being able to like really enable security on the net. The problem is it's really good. Encryption today is really good. And so not only can it be used for good purposes, but it can be used for Questionable, shady. Yeah, this is always. A, I remember talking Dark. to Phil Zimmerman about PGP, and this is always the thing people say. Well, you can't have encryption because the terrorists will use it, and it's tricky. Yes, it is. So what happened was in Brazil, a um, someone was under investigation, Daniel Dantas, under investigation for money money laundering in Brazil. He had five hard drives, which he had encrypted with TrueCrypt, which we've talked about often, a fantastic whole drive encryption tool or even a partial drive encryption tool yeah. if you just want to encrypt a folder. The Brazilian authorities tried for five months to whatever it was they did. We don't really know what they were doing, but they tried for five months to get access to his drives. What's interesting is that under Brazilian law, the police do not have the right to force uh, this guy to reveal his passwords. So after five months, they asked the U.S. FBI to please see if the FBI could gain access to the contents of these drives. And after a year, the FBI gave them back, <laughs> never having succeeded. Now, we're sure of that, right? They didn't. Get into it and didn't decide, well, we don't want anybody to know that true crypto work does. What, what we believe is, and it's entirely believable, 
is that because because the, the various stories have gone into some detail. The FBI has something for TrueCrypt called Dictionary. And so we know what that means. We know that any good password-based encryption, the if if there are no other known vulnerabilities, the single glitch, the single vulnerability is password guessing. You just brute force try to guess the password. And so the FBI has in their arsenal of tools some sort of a something called dictionary. And for a year, they they had these five drives spinning, pounding on them and on TrueCrypt, just trying to guess the password using their dictionary. Wow. Now, Daniel uh, Dantas, this guy who is under investigation, clearly didn't use any of those passwords. He came up with something unique, and that's all it took. So I'm not... I mean, I don't know anything about him, whether he's guilty or not of of laundering. I mean, this is well, the the double edged sword, but it do, it is a lesson to our listeners because we've talked about this often. If you use a password that is not in the dictionary, that is sufficiently long and has a lot of entropy, a lot of randomness in it, then all other things being equal, if there aren't other backdoors or other trapdoors or 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 failings in the cryptography and we know that true crypt has been very carefully and beautifully designed over time and has been evolving then there's no way in there's you know and it's funny because the actual one of the uh, news reports i read i got a kick out of it said it said literally quote under brazilian law the police do not have the right to force either dantis or true crypts makers to reveal the passwords used to protect the hard drives well, TrueCrypt's makers are absolutely powerless to help. I mean, they they designed it as a as a robust, high quality crypto system, such that you know there's nothing they can do. It's I mean, anyone can can examine TrueCrypt, which is open source, and see what the technology is, and you know, it absolutely no one on the planet, given a year. Of pounding, we don't know how much you know how long it would take brute forcing all possible passwords. But if the password is long, TrueCrypt's technology is such that uh, you know Dantas won't be worrying about having his drives looked at anytime soon. So now I wonder if this does say though that TrueCrypt is uh, is impermeable. It merely means that a brute force attack can't be used against it, right? I mean, that's all they did. Right. So it's. It's the I guess the, the the way to say it is to is to be very careful with terminology and, and to say, you know, everything else notwithstanding. That is, we, we don't know there isn't a bug in TrueCrypt, but we know that very good people have have deliberately designed it using all of the state of the art knowledge of how to do this correctly. Very high quality random number generation you know the the best ciphers um uh advising people who use it about the nature of the password that that's that that's the vulnerability so choose a really good password and we know what that really good password phrase now means so um yeah we we can't we can't 
ever state that a crypto system is invulnerable or perfect. I mean, there are people who are kind of chiseling away at AES right now, and they've not made great progress, but reduced strength versions of AES are, eh, they're beginning to sort of understand what AES does. You know, it's, it's many years old now. And so they're, they're kind of, you know, they're sniffing around the edges, but still the, the formal high strength AES, the one that's part of the standard that anyone would use, is absolutely bulletproof so far as we know. I mean, yes, a breakthrough could happen tomorrow in, in deciphering technology. Seems really unlikely, but it, it could happen. But, you know, and, and this was just sort of an interesting case in point where someone who chose, clearly chose a good password was protected. And unfortunately, I mean, uh, we don't know what's on the hard drives. Nobody ever will be, unless Daniel Dantas, you know, reveals his password. Okay. And then my last little bit of news is that Google's Chrome browser has moved ahead of Safari to take the number three spot in total access, you know, browser-based access to the net, um, which I thought was interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised by that, but uh, uh, just a little, you know, it's, I mean, you know, we know that IE is, a, is in strong first place. Firefox is in strong second place. So the two of those, number one and number two browsers, pretty much are soaking up all the oxygen on the net. There's there's not much left over. It's you know a single digit percentage, but uh, but brow, but Chrome's a little bit ahead of Safari, which happened last week. Yeah, I I, I use Chrome religiously now. I know you're a Firefox fan, but um, boy, I love Chrome. It's fast. Yeah, well, it's got extensions. It, it's it's really just great. It's been well designed. Um, and in my one little bit of errata, just totally not completely out from left field, but. Uh, ICANN has finally decided to approve a .xxx top-level domain. That's not errata. That's erratica. For, <laughs> for adult content. And, you know, it's it's been controversial because, you know, people take all kinds of different views of this. And I'm not saying it's a good thing or not. I'm just reporting that this is a little bit of news. Um because people are saying, well, that doesn't mean that, you know, the, the porn sites are going to give up their .com domains. They'll just grab .xxx as well. It's like, okay, well, that's probably true. Um, but it's been uh, essentially the, the, the arguments for them not allowing a .xxx top-level top domain ended up falling short. And it was shown that it was just sort of irrational bias against having it and that irrational bias wasn't a good enough reason not to allow it. <laughs> so, you know, why can't we have it? And they said, okay, yeah, fine. Yes, I you know? can. And actually, the yes, um, the, the registrar who will be managing this and who's been pushing for it is going to charge, I think it's $60 per year, for 
for domains in the .xxx top level domain. And, and do you have to prove that you're XXX? I mean, could somebody register Google.xxx? I don't know. Um, but he will be I donating. .xxx. He will be donating a, a, a non inconsequential, that is a consequential amount of money to child protection. Good. Charities. Good. Which I thought was neat. Yeah. You know, so a chunk of those domain registrations will go to, you know, sort of work against what, you know, some of the ickiness of, uh, of that side of the internet. So that's yeah. cool. Yeah. And um, I had, in keeping with today's Q&A theme, uh, a note from Troy Haskin in Madison, Wisconsin. He was wondering about a Spinrite tip jar. He said, yeah. I've recently listened to your Q&A discussion, that, or your Q&A discussing the ins and outs of Spinrite's personal license concerning use by friends, family, etc. I must admit that about a month ago, I used Spinrite to save my roommate's computer from a bad sector. She has about 20 pages. She, she was about 20 pages into her master's thesis and wasn't one backup. Oh. I, made, I made her a huge fan of live mesh after this. So I threw Spinrite in, and all was well in 36 hours. Nothing special, I know, from years of listening. He said, anyway, I did feel at the time that I was slightly overextending the wonderful freedom of the product, but really wanted to help a friend out. And after listening to you and Leo discuss this topic, it occurred to me, why not try a tip Steve jar like the tip Leo jar recently instituted for Twit? Then, the next time I have to save another friend, which will happen, <laughs> I could tell them to go and give as they feel. That's a good I idea. I think this would be a nice and non-intrusive way of allowing people to thank you for your wonderful software. Thanks for reading, and thanks for the years of excellent content. Well, I don't know. Um, I think that sort of formalizes breaching our, our license agreement and I don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, I think I would, I mean, I, I, I look at, at the value people are receiving from Spinrite. And while Spinrite's not cheap, um, you know, it does deliver. And people's time is worth something, uh, as is mine. So, I mean, I would, I think, I'm, I think GRC is probably better off encouraging people to purchase Spinrite, if they want to use it on their own machines, I'm going to turn a blind eye toward people who help friends. But I would rather encourage people to get their own copy of Spinrite than sort of turn this into a you know pay it as you go sort of basis. I'm 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 uncomfortable with with the tip jar notion. So I just wanted to share that in case it had been uh, something other people had thought about. And uh, we haven't heard a yabba dabba do in a while. <laughs> well, I have it muted during yes. the podcast. <laughs> for those who haven't heard earlier shows, that's the sound that uh, Steve has sounds at for every every network event. And the sound when somebody uh, a credit card goes through, a purchase goes through of Spinrite is yabba dabba do, <laughs> which happens probably fairly frequently. Always makes me smile. I bet it does. Hey, you know what always makes me smile? Audible.com. Before we get to the questions, let's talk a little bit about my favorite library of great audiobooks, 75,000 strong. 
I still read. You know, I read on the uh, iPad, on the Kindle. I even read physical paper dead tree books from time to time. But more and more, if a book is available on Audible, that's how I'll listen to it. I just, I love audible.com. Right now, I'm listening to the bestseller, The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. It's coming to the end. It's so good. And I can't recommend it more highly. I mean, this is a great book. There's the, the whole Millennium Trilogy is on Audible. If you haven't listened to those, that's great. But we, well, here's the deal. We like to give you a free book to get you started. I encourage this from all of our sponsors because, you know, you're smart people. I, you know, we don't want to trick you into buying a product. We want you to try it. And if you like it, then buy it. Now, Audible's no exception. If you go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now, you can sign up for the gold account. That's one book a month. It's best to do with a subscription. subscription. You can buy Audible books uh, a la carte, but it's much more affordable if you subscribe. I have a two-book-a-month subscription. I love it. I've been a member since 2001, two books a month since 2001. Well over 400 books in my Audible library. I love that. But uh, if you, if you, if you want to get that book free, just subscribe. You can cancel. You have 30 days to cancel with no charge. There's no charge to you for the first 30 days, and you get your first book free. And even after you cancel, and I think this is really important, unlike some of these uh, copy protection schemes, Audible does have copy protection on it. It has to. The publishers require it. But you get to keep the book forever. In fact, when you buy an Audible book, it's in your library forever. The new uh, Android uh, Audible application, which I love, shows you your whole library. You can go through all of your books, 400 in my case, and pick any book to listen to, which is really great. Here's a book I am going to listen to as my next listen. From Farhad Manju, it's called True Enough, Learning to Live in a Post-Fact Society. One of the things about Audible is there's fiction, but there's also non-fiction. So I'm listening to a murder mystery right now. But I like to alternate. So the next book will be non-fiction. And this sounds like a really interesting book. Farhad uh, says that punditry has overtaken media. That media outlets are now pushing partisan agendas instead of facts. And uh, he, he, he's, he questions, how do you survive in an environment like that? What does that mean for our, our country and for us as consumers of information? This sounds good. Yes, it does. Yeah, it just came out June 1st. But this is the kind of thing. Audible can expand your mind, but it can also entertain. It can amuse. Science fiction, too. And I always like to point that out because I know Steve's uh, fans, uh, are as, a, as, as we are, are big science fiction fans. And they have a ton of great sci-fi, including a new Neil Stevenson. Ooh, Neil Stevenson and Frederick George, J. Frederick George. It's called The Cobweb. Uh-oh. Ooh, this is good, too. 16 hours. You get your, you get your, your bucks for this one. When a foreign exchange student... Oh, it's a murder mystery, too. Ooh, how interesting. It's a, it's a political thriller. I, I never heard of this one. When a foreign exchange student is found murdered at an Iowa university, Deputy Sheriff Clyde Banks finds his investigator's investigation extends far beyond the small college town all the way to the Middle East. I might have to download this one, too. Mm. More fiction. You see the choice? This is the problem. There's too many good books. Try one free right now. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now on iPhone, on iPod, on Kindle, on Android, on the iPad, on the Sansa. There's well over 500 different devices you could play Audible books on. I carry an Audible book. Actually, I carry about a dozen Audible books with me everywhere I go, and I'm never bored. Listen in the car. Listen at the gym. Listen around the house. Audiblepodcast.com 
slash security now. Now that there's an Audible uh, app for Android, people are asking me, well, what about an Audible app for the iPhone? You don't really need one, of course. It's just, you just download it and it syncs in iTunes. But I'm told they're working on one because the Audible app for uh, uh, for uh, Android is so good that now the iPhone folks say, wait, wait a minute, we want that. Be able to list all your stuff, download it at any time from anywhere and stuff like that's great. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Give it a try. Absolutely free. I know you're going to love it. Are you ready, Steve? Let's go. We've got questions. We've got about half an hour to answer them. So we're going to do as many as we can in 30 minutes, starting Sounds with good. Timothy Hahn in Maryland and many other listeners who are concerned by recent stories about invalid SSL certificates. Tim starts the ball rolling by writing Steve, eSecurity, Planet, and Slashdot, and many others have front page articles today saying, well, we have about 22 million SSL servers with certificates that are completely invalid because they don't match the domain name on which they reside, meaning only about 3% of SSL certs in use are actually valid. What? Naturally, I and many others are concerned by this. I knew of only one place where I, I could get it explained by someone who understood what was going on, and we both know where that is. You, Mr. G, what's the deal? Well, this really was... I don't know how to explain why, what happened here because a bunch of news outlets picked up this story, which is completely bogus. Um, and it's from a, I mean, a, you know, uh, uh, a reputable security firm, uh, Qualys, Q-U-A-L-Y-S. Um, and, for example, reading... Just so you understand what the background is here, reading one of the stories uh, from June 29th, which is just a day ago, new research conducted by security firm Qualys has revealed that only 3.17, it's good to have accurate numbers on these bogus stories, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) 3.17. It makes people believe it. Exactly. Percent of secure websites have valid Secure socket layer SSL certificates. Okay, well, re, uh, right off the bat, you know, it's like, wait a minute, what? The company said that it had scanned 119 million domain names, of which only 92 million were active. More than 12.4 million domains had res- resolving issues, and 14.6 million failed to respond of the remaining 92 million active domains 34 million domains used both port 80 typically used for http and port 443 which is used for websites with the prefix https colon slash slash those secured using ssl ivan ristic r-i-s-t-i-c ivan ristic Director of Engineering at Qualys said that by taking a closer look at those sites that used port 443, the firm discovered that only 23 million were actually using SSL. However, Ristic said that less than a million, only 3.17% of the domain names matched. That means that 22 million SSL servers have certificates that are completely invalid. 
because they do not match the domain name on which they reside. Ristic said, quote, For us, the question is, how exactly is SSL used on the Internet as a whole? Interestingly enough, as popular as SSL is, no one had made public the information about how it was used, unquote. So <laughs> I, you know, I, I read several versions of this report because, I mean, everyone was in a panic and I was getting tweeted and, and people were, you know, sending emails. Oh, my God, only 3.17% of SSL certificates are valid. It's like, no, <laughs> no. What? I don't know why they did this or it's just who authorized scurrilous. The, well, who authorized the release of this news release from a reputable security firm? Because mm. Wallace is. Um, apparently, what this guy did was get all the domain names there are. And I think he used, I, I saw somewhere, .com, .net, .org, .edu, .gov. So he liked the main top-level domains, TLDs, and recursed through all the domain names, did a lookup of their IP, then connected to that IP and checked to see whether port 80 and port 443 were accepting connections. And a 443 was accepting a connection, initiated an SSL connection to obtain the SSL certificate for port 443 at that IP. And then was upset if the certificate name was different than the domain name they had used to look up the IP to get to the port, to get to the certificate. Okay. Which is, <laughs> which tells just nothing. Right. For example, I, I have www.grc.com at, it ends in dot 202, 4.79.142.202 is grc, www.grc.com's IP address. And I have a valid certificate and everyone who can, you know, uses HTTPS can connect to me with no problems at all. Well, I also have spinright.com. I own that domain. But I don't have a big separate website there. It points to the same IP. So that if someone goes www.spinright.com, they get to GRC. So using Ivan Ristik's logic... My certificate is invalid because hmm. he would have taken www.spinright.com, looked up the IP, which is shared with grc.com, same IP, and he would have received grc.com's SSL certificate and said, <gasps> they don't match. Well, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, they don't. Who cares? You know, that's that's... You know, you can you use you cannot use https colon slash slash spinright.com because that I don't have a separate spinright.com SSL certificate living on its own IP address. Multiple domains share a single IP address. Well, where have we ever heard that before? That's called shared hosting, which is hugely popular. Right. Which is, Everybody does it. 
Yes, which is the hole this guy fell down. Oh, please. And doesn't seem to have realized it. Moron. <laughs> so, anyway, everybody can breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah. The, you know, this doesn't mean anything. This this is ridiculous. I don't, again, it, it grabbed some headlines and, you know, everyone who was panting over it, slash dot. It's like, well, but they do that a lot there, you know, Commander Taco and his crew. So, well, I mean, it, normally I, I, I love slash dot, but I think a little bit of an uncritical eye here on this one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so people need to recognize, I mean, I, I do too, slash dot for what it's worth. I mean, I think they do, there's lots of interesting stuff pops up there and gets discussed. So it's, it's certainly oh, yeah. But it's, um, this is actually a good time to say that, it, you know, we more and more have to use our thinking caps when we read something. Just because you read something online doesn't make it true, even if it's in a trusted source. And you just have to, you just have to think about it. Does it pass the sniff test? Or well, write yes. to Steve. And and you have to again, you you to understand the details, you need to understand exactly how the internet works. Right. So that may be the problem. And so, you know, that's what we just went through was I explained to our right. listeners right. where this number came from and what it means and why it's nothing to worry about. Because because the fact is if anyone attempted to access a website whose certificate did not match, they get all kinds of warnings. I mean, if you, for example, anyone could try it. Go HTTP colon, HTTPS colon slash slash spinright.com. You will be warned that, that, that there's a security certificate problem that the, that, um, because you will have tried to get to to spinright.com. You will have received a certificate from www.grc.com. Those names don't match, and your browser will say, "Whoa, hold on, stop." Well, because you know, no one's meant to use spinright.com securely to get to the same IP address. It's just sort of a you know, I had I had to aim it somewhere. And the other thing is, they were talking about like domain names that don't go anywhere. Well, yeah, I've got. You know, domain names I used for a while, and I sort of still have them, but they don't point to anything. They're unresolved. It's like, you know, there is a lot of sort of debris around the Internet. So I'm, based on what the story says, I'm sure this must be what happened. It fits the facts perfectly, and it's not anything for anyone to worry about. Yeah. Breathe easy. A sigh of relief. Stand down. Question three, Corby in Reno, Nevada. He's wondering about almost perfect paper passwords. Steve, I've been using your PPP for a long time. Recently, my wireless NAT router went belly up and I had to replace it. Unfortunately, it also meant re-entering a perfect password into my two TiVos. Oh, this sounds painful because there's 64 characters, right? Yeah, yeah, they are. They're long and they're gnarly looking. And they're random. Yeah. As very, all good passwords very. should be. TiVo uses, TiVo uses a virtual keyboard. On-screen entering letters and symbols is a huge pain. Even worse, once they're entered, editing mistakes, impossible. You have to start over. Oh, jeez. <laughs> However, numbers can be entered simply by using the number buttons in the remote control. I decided to simplify my life and use only numbers for my WPA2 AES password. Oh, that's a good idea. That makes it easier to enter anyway. Since your perfect password service doesn't have an option for generating a numbers-only password, I had to create my own finger-random numerical password. Probably not ideal, but at least I can enter the digits into TiVos without too much fuss. Would you consider making PPP 
have a numeric password generator. I realize the security is lower than when using alphanumeric and symbols, but I think 63 numbers are good enough for WPA. What do you think? Let's talk about that. That's a, a, a good point. First of all, the, the passphrase, which is put into any WPA2 system, whether it's a TiVo, which supports WPA, if it's your router, if it's your laptop, whatever, there's a, a well-defined, uniform algorithm which, is, which m- m- mashes up the passphrase you put in and results in a 256-bit key. So if you put in the passphrase A, you get a 256-bit key. Even though A only, you know, it was a byte. It had eight bits. This, this algorithm converts it into 256 bits. It converts anything you put in into 256 bits. It uses um, uh, a SHA-1 hash algorithm. So uh, the problem, of course, with putting A in is that it's the first thing someone's going to guess. And so they'll be able to crack your network. So you don't want to use that. You want to use something much longer. So what you'd like to do is use something, ideally, that it's where the, where the key itself, the passphrase itself, has 256 bits of entropy. Whereas, for example, A has, can't have more than 8 bits. And, it's, and you could easily run through all of those. There's only 256 possible combinations of 8 bits. And again, you've, you've cracked the network in a short time if you have only 8 bits of entropy. It's too easy to check that. So, so the point is, first, that anything you put in is converted into 256 bits. If you put something with more than 256 bits of entropy in, it's converted to 256 bits. So at some point, you sort of, you know, you're a super long passphrase of upper and lower case with a wild alphabet that's 63 characters long. Let's see how many bits that is. That's, um, that's say that we had, um, what, maybe 127 or may- maybe seven bits per character of actual entropy times 63 characters, well, that's 441 bits. So that's a lot of entropy, but it's reduced to 256 bits. That's the actual key that's used for Wi-Fi. So um, in Corby's case, he wants to just use digits. And so that means he's got zero through nine. Well, we can we know how to figure out the equivalent an amount of entropy, the, the, the amount of bits, essentially, in an alphabet of any size. If we have 10 characters, 0 through 9, the, the log 10 over log 2, that is because we're wanting to, to do binary bits, so it's log 2, that tells us that, that we have 3.322 bits per digit. So... An alphabet of 10 characters, 0 through 9, gives us 3.322 essential, equivalent bits per digit. So 63 of those, assuming he's going to fill up the whole input box for his WPA, 
is just 63 times 3.322 bits per digit, which is 209,281, 209.281 equivalent binary bits. That's a lot. So the fact is, okay, you're, you didn't get all the way up to 256. You didn't go over 256. There's really no point of going over 256, but you got to 209. That's an incredibly strong key. So yes, if you, if you do a good job of choosing randomly just the, the numeric characters 0 through 9, remembering that each one of them gives you 3.322 bits of strength, if you use 63 of them, you get a little over 209 equivalent bits of key strength. That's plenty. And that's plenty. Especially, yep. especially for Wi-Fi. I mean, yep. I don't. Exactly. Yeah, I don't even go that far. Nope. Question four. Let's we go. actually we skipped number two, which was a good oh. one. Whoops. Whoops. So. <laughs> Whoops. David Newton in Leamington Spa, UK, suggests. Oh yeah, sorry about that. The EFFs HTTPS everywhere. For the Q and A this week, I recommend you feature a new Firefox extension called HTTPS Everywhere. It's created by the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and aims to automate the process of using TLS for web pages where possible. For example, after installing the application, all pages on Wikipedia automatically go to their TLS version. Awesome. It uses regular expressions to redirect URLs so that the TLS version is automatically used. I guess it rewrites the URL when yes. possible. Uh, I, I wanted, I wanted not to... I wanted not to skip this because yeah. many, many listeners have written in to say, hey, what about HTTPS everywhere? You got to talk about that. What do you think about that? Well, it's cool, but it's sort of limited. It's exactly as you said, Leo. What's happening is it's, it's not redirecting. Redirection is a, is a reserved term, meaning that you went to somewhere and the server said, go somewhere else. So that's redirection. What, what it's doing is exactly as you said, Leo. It's doing an on-the-fly rewrite of the URL you put into your browser. So what this extension does, essentially, and it's, it's very nice and clever, is it has a file of, of JavaScript regular expression matching so that it, it has sort of a knowledge base per website. So Wikipedia's got some f- expressions. Google's got some expressions. Uh, you know, Foursquare, four I mean, Foursquare, you know, whatever. <laughs> All the different things it knows about. Um, it knows, so, so, so it, it has to have some, some, some domain-specific awareness of, of like which pages go where and sort of how to get the equivalent page. Many times it's just a matter of putting the S on the HTTP and, you know, that's the way it is GRC. GRC's pages are are symmetric. Some sites are a little trickier um, and it uses regular expressions so you can match complex phrases in a sophisticated way. So I would say, you know, it's a nice add-on. It doesn't do anything to sites it doesn't know about and it's user expandable. So if there are sites that you care about, you can edit that template to to augment it so that you can just put in HTTP and it'll automatically do the right thing, which is, you know, I, I think it's very cool. It's it's So it's not like 
the total answer to securing the the web because it only is able to munge the URLs that are that it has permission to that it that it knows something about by virtue of them being in this template file. I imagine over time this file is going to grow and it will acquire an increasing knowledge base of sites that it's able to make secure. And I mean, it would really be nice if just all web browsing of all kinds was over HTTPS. From a privacy standpoint, that would be great. We've seen like there's some downside because because people that want to be able to filter content are unable to do that. But still, it would be nice if it were possible. I'm sorry I left you out. And, no problem. And I'm glad we good, could get that Good in. question. So, Christoph Angerer in Zurich, Switzerland asks, why encrypted security is all or nothing? Steve, I was just listening to 254, our last episode, your discussion of open versus encrypted wireless routers in the Google case. What I was wondering and I wanted to hear your take on is this. Why do the standardized security solutions always have to be 100%? Always on or always off? Nothing at all or all all at all. I understand for securing a private wireless router, encryption plus a password is absolutely necessary. But why isn't there any router that that only encrypts the traffic H, like HTTPS does, so that sniffing the data is prevented, but you still have the convenience of an open Starbucks hotspot. Maybe this wouldn't prevent somebody from spoofing a Starbucks router or something, but, I, but if the alternative is to send everything in the clear, then I think it's still way better. For example, I'm trying to get my head around what he's saying here, Steve. As a, but maybe this example will help. As a website owner, which I am, I have a similar issue with a certificate in HTTPS. To prevent a man-in-the-middle attack, the certificate is necessary. Okay, I understand that. But it'd still be nice if there were a standard way to just encrypt the data on the wire, for example, user passwords, without having to buy expensive certificates and the implied fixed IP. Well, that, that makes sense to me. And without having the browsers complain about self-signed certificates. My little site doesn't have to be as secure as my bank, but I wouldn't—I don't want to make stealing user credentials too easy either. As a summary, I think there ought to be a middle ground in security where one is allowed to just lock the door but not be required to construct a full-fledged Fort Knox out of everything. Love your show. Listen to every episode the second it's out, Christoph. How could you do that on a router? I'm trying to think what that would mean. Well, he's really, he's really saying sort of like SSL, Without authentication. Right. He's saying, you know, the reason we pay VeriSign... Just encrypt it. Yes, encrypt it, but don't worry about authentication. Right. Now, first of all, I agree. It would be... It would... There... We could certainly have a protocol which, during the connection, the sides exchange some, some randomness which allows them to agree... During, at the beginning of the connection to a symmetric key, and then they both use that for encrypting and de- decrypting the traffic. That could absolutely be done. And he, he understands clearly that what's not preventable if we do that is an active man-in-the-middle attack. Because if you don't authenticate, then you don't know that you're not setting up a, a, an encrypted connection to a bad guy who's then setting up an encrypted connection to your destination. Meanwhile, he's able to decrypt and then re-encrypt and, and see your stuff in the clear. But he's completely right that if we understood that we're not authenticating the endpoint, 
There's no reason you couldn't have a lightweight, simple protocol, which unfortunately we don't have, which simply chooses a random key and uses it as the cipher for that connection. Could absolutely be done. It would, it would mean that like the Google problem of sniffing Wi-Fi, it would mean that passive eavesdropping would completely go away. Active man-in-the-middle eavesdropping, which is arguably much more sophisticated and difficult, it would, it would not solve that problem. But we don't have any solution for that problem for non-SSL now anyway. So, yeah, it's really a good point. With, if, we, if we know we don't get authentication, if we know that we're not having protection, we don't really know we're connecting securely. I mean, you'd, we'd need a different protocol. We couldn't show a padlock and give people the idea that they had a secure connection to the bank. We, so, so the padlock would have to mean SSL authentication. Anything else would just be, you know, like if there were like some, some optional protocol that servers started to support that clients supported. Where it's like, okay, look, can we just, you know, let, here's a key, let's use it so that what we're doing is not in the clear. And we're, we're going to agree, no padlocks, no green bars, nothing indicating security to the end user, but at least the traffic going through the air or over the network, it's been scrambled. Hasn't been, you know, made bulletproof, but sure is better than it just being in the clear and totally doable. Interesting. Maybe we should do that. I think there are hotspots where you can go and... Uh, it's encrypted, but you don't have to log in. Or there's it seems like there are some. There is something like that. I don't know. You have nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> we're out of time, so I think we're going to table the rest of these questions. And there's so many good ones. I hate to do it, but uh, we must move on. Well, they 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 will keep for two weeks, and um, uh, we'll we'll pick up where we left off. And if you have uh, questions uh, for Steve, you go to securitynow.com slash feedback. You get them answered. Well, maybe you'll get them answered. He doesn't. I don't think you answer personally, do you? Uh, no. Who has and time? We get hundreds. Yeah. And so I, I, I read what I can. I answer what I can. And uh, uh, But please, I mean, that's the source for all of this. So right. we do need input and feedback. And it really helps me to sort of profile the, the show. For example, next week is finally, at long last, the full cryptographic system presentation of LastPass. Oh, I'm and, so excited about that. That's great. Yes, and, and it's only because people have written in and said, hey, what about LastPass? You're going to talk right. about LastPass. You're going to talk about LastPass. You said you were going to talk about LastPass. <laughs> it's like, now we're going to talk about LastPass. Right, last last but if I, if I didn't have that feedback, I wouldn't know. And it, you know, it would have, might have fallen through the cracks. You guys didn't let it happen. So... Next week, last pass. There you go. Thank you so much, Steve. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's the place to find 16 kilobit versions of this show. You can get uh, transcripts, too, thanks to Steve and Elaine, who writes this all down and then posts it. Uh, and, of course, SpinRight, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, a must-have if you have a hard drive. You can also find lots of free utilities, perfect paper passwords, and more. GRC, Gibson Research Corporation.com. Steve and I do this show every Wednesday, uh, if I don't start late, at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 1800 UTC. You can watch live and even participate live at live.twit.tv. There's a chat room link right there. You can uh, watch it. In fact, we have an iPad app, an iPhone app. 
many other apps that you can uh, watch this show live. We're getting more and more uh, live streaming out. In fact, soon, I hope, on the Roku. But you can always download it, too, from all of the general places you'd get your podcast, or just go to twit.tv slash sn, and you can subscribe there, twit.tv slash sn. Steve, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Righto, Leo. Thanks very much. On Security Now. Security Now.